Welcome to new episode of the B Podcast, and today with me all the way from the US. Last time we talked to you in Arizona, Mike, right? I am now in North Carolina. North Carolina, and how is the weather there? Hopefully, it's sunny and, ch- and and wonderful as much as there was last time. Uh, lots of sun, lots of very nice weather, but it's actually really warm today, so ah, a little sketchy, a little questionable. All right, cool. Because we have really hot. Actually, we're expecting him pulling a thunderstorm today, so it's very hot, twenty eight degrees. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm yeah, lucky so, that yeah, aircon today. Yeah, the same thing here. We definitely have the air conditioning running throughout our house. So we use Fahrenheit here. So it's going to be, I think, 97 or 98 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really abnormally warm for North Carolina. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time indoors today. Okay, cool. Mike, um, today's topic, uh, and for everyone listening to us, is about how to create a purposeful life. Um, but let me start by saying congratulations on the book. I've read the, through the chapter three because you told me to read. Um, uh, yes, and it's called I Know. It's available on Amazon, I believe. So, Yeah, Bar- Barnes & Noble, Apple, Google, 40,000 retailers around the globe. But most people would probably get it through one of those distributors. Excellent. Now, before I dive to the story, I've read the, through the intro and the chapter three. But through the intro... I'm really interested to hear it from you, actually. What What's the story behind writing the book? Because it's it's out of pain. If Is it right if I say that? Yeah, that's a great way to say it. I, I really wanted the idea of something called the pain to purpose journey uh, for people to be able to um, understand that the, the, the challenges and the hardships and the tumultuousness that they experience in life isn't necessarily bad. Sometimes there's really good lessons that we learn through those things. And then we can then pay that forward by helping others. So your pain, those challenges, those hardships can actually become a purpose to uplift others who are going through something roughly the same as you. So I didn't want to write the book, Ben. I was very nervous. I was very shy, but I had quite a few clients and friends told me that it was that I should write a story about not only my life, but also my clients' lives. And so when the pandemic started in March of 2020, that summer, I had a lot of time to just think because some of my revenue and some of the speaking engagements and things that I had were pushed off until later in the year. So I had time that summer. And I finally worked up the courage to say, all right, I'm going to invest six months into this process of telling my story, my client's stories, and much of the work that I do as a coach for others. And so I'm glad that that summer happened and that I worked up the courage to be able to tell the story and write the book, because had that not worked out, I don't know if I would have ever written it. If if you would like to share this info, is there is a, something in working like a, a follow, follow-up edition, another book? in a process. I'm curious, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had always envisioned that I could write three books, right? The first one be calling I Know. So how does a person begin to trust his or her intuition in a world full of you know unexpected uncertainty? Uh, the next would be called I Belong. So this is not in the works yet, but I mentally am working through what that would be. Uh, so it would be called I Belong. And it's like, how do you become a very, very deep member of a group? How do you learn through relationships? How do you become, be seen and heard and valued through your relationships? And I think the last one would be called I Am. And that would be probably when I'm 50, 60, 70 years old, Ben. So it's a little ways down the road. But that one would be a little bit more connected to people really thoroughly understanding that they are a soul having a human experience and teaching them more things outside of the traditional uh, things that we know society to be today. So 
Yes, in the future, I'm guessing that there will be kind of two follow-up books from I Know, uh, but I have not started writing them yet. Quite interesting. And I'll be looking, I'll be keeping an eye on you, Mike. Um, I think you're doing, (laughs) exactly, I'm keeping an eye on you, man. (laughs) Um, In in one of the the passages, you talk about, I think you... You talk a lot about um, getting rid of hurry, and, and you know you mentioned right now actually trusting intuition, but also the the element of paying forward and and all of that, and which is means like creating almost like a a positive energy field around us because like no one could thrive. I think that's what I understood from your books. Like no one could thrive in his own hair on. It just it's all about how we can help each other so everyone's could thrive in that community because otherwise I think that will not work, right? Is, am, I, am I right in, in my conclusion? Yeah, humans are a very social species. <clears throat> and the easiest way to wrap your mind around this is the Harvard study. It's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And it's this 80-plus year study that's been facilitated by uh, an entity within Harvard, but also the Harvard Medical School, basically attempting to assess and understand what leads to a long, happy, and healthy life. And through 80 plus years of study, what they've realized that that the key to a long, happy, healthy life for any human being is not power, money, fame, or traditional versions of success. It's actually the quality of your close-knit relationships. So the thing that's actually going to keep you alive and make you happy and produce health in your life or well-being isn't anything external to you that we would normally be motivated by. It's the quality and the depth and the closeness of the relationships that you have, right? There's even another great study that came out of Wharton. Unfortunately, the, the professor that did it uh, passed away a couple months ago uh, here in 2022. Uh, but she found back in the late 90s and early 2000s that emotions are contagious. Her name is Sagal Barsade. And so she was able to prove that whenever uh, there's, a, there's a feeling in a room or one person is experiencing a particular type of emotion, that we unconsciously pick up that emotion and then emulate it or reciprocate it back to the person. So very, very interesting look at we are taught in society that we're supposed to be an individual and that we're supposed to go after our own personal goals and accomplish all these things. But in reality, the truth is, is that we are very, very strongly connected in ways that our eyes can't see. And the thing that actually give us the most meaning is the people around us. Is it that is that has to do with the way we communicate as a human? That most of it is nonverbal, so it's like our recept receptives will just perceive a messages that we don't are not conscious is, and then we react react to it. Is is that has to do with it? It's like yowing, for example. Is it that that's like makes sense? So I'm telling stupid things. No, we we certainly uh, as an example, like music. Uh, although there's very different types of music amongst the 200 countries and territories across the world, there are certain uh, themes, there are certain sounds, there are certain patterns inside the music that regardless of where you're on on the planet, you'll recognize a, a happy note or you'll recognize a sad note or you'll recognize those things. And so music being the universal language of mankind, even though people can come from very different backgrounds, we unconsciously or are given you know, from generation to generation, uh, kind of stored in our DNA, if you will, is a way to understand what it means to be a part of a community. We know what it means to be acculturated. We know what it means to be socially accepted. And so I think that these things are passed to us from previous generations. And we 
we aren't necessarily taught these unconscious behaviors or responses. They just exist because we're human beings. That's leading me to this to the following question, if if, if you wish. It's like, what's happiness? Yeah, I I love this uh, thinking about this a lot. I'm glad that you asked Ben because it dictionaries in Western countries kind of say that hey, these are feelings of joy, they're feelings of well being, they're contentment. And as I've navigated life, and as I try to talk about a little bit in the book, I know is that I don't think that happiness is actually the goal. I, I don't think that that's what we should be striving for because. When you believe that the grass is always greener on the other side of something, you're, you're going to believe that you'll be happy after you accomplish a goal or you have X number of dollars or you visited X number of foreign countries, maybe that you found the right job or the right partner. What that does is it kind of sets you into a place of being a victim of external circumstances, right? And we don't want you to be a victim. We want you to be in control. We want you to trust your intuition. We want you to trust your power. And so what I think that happiness is, uh, or could be or be replaced by is that we find way more value in uncovering the meaning in our life's highs and lows. And I think it's the meaning that that we experience through these events that actually gives us a sense of purpose that we might not otherwise feel. Does that make sense, Ben? Like it's a very different yeah. approach, but I think it's really important. Yeah. And, and no, I'm, I'm trying to reflect what I'm hearing you, Mike. It's like what, what you, it's like we, it, it could be a good thing that we kind of precondition ourselves as toward, I would be happy if I have that X, Y, Z goals or like if I'll be happy of if I get my meal with my, you know, my family or visit a certain places or get, you know, certified in certain areas. But I'm conscious also that's a kind of trap too, because if you precondition yourself to, to that specific things, if you fail, it create disappointment. And, ad- and adverse reactions. And and if you're not careful about that, you might go to a depression if it's a big thing, right? I don't know, you'd like, example, you would like to marry the love of your life. If that, if that doesn't happen, and then what? Right? So, so, so but how could we, how we could be self-aware in a way that, how could we make ourselves, like, not happiness itself is what we're seeking, but we focus on the on, on a on a better purpose, and happiness become the the byproduct to what we do, but not really essentially the things that we're looking after. Yeah, it, that's a, a really challenging thing because what I talk about inside of chapter four of I know isn't necessarily talked a lot about in society. So recently, in many Western countries, I don't know how much into Asia this has gotten, but there's an app called the Pattern. And I'm not sure if you've if you've heard of this, Ben, but it's an but it's an app a little bit based on astrology, a little bit based on uh, social networking. And there are sections inside the pattern that will tell you what your life's mission or destiny is. And there's also this gentleman, uh, Dan Millman, who wrote a book, uh, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And then he has this thing on his website called the Life Purpose Calculator. So you plug in some information about yourself and it gives you your life's mission or purpose. So, so I tried to take a little bit more of a, a calculated approach to kind of those same ideas to say, if we're constantly seeking some material reward or some external reward that comes from the job or the travel or the partner, let's instead, let's find meaning or maybe happiness through uncovering and then living every day our life's mission. 
So in chapter four, I talk about the five tools that can kind of come together to so that you can identify the patterns across each and then you can write your personal mission. You can know what your core values are. You can write your unique value proposition so that when you have this kind of guiding star, the same way that every organization that you've ever done work with has a mission and core values and goals, you could set those for yourself. Now, the ups and the downs that exist in life don't drag you down. You actually have a very consistent level of motivation and happiness to keep going, even when things around you aren't going well. Yeah, now I understand. I bet that it's like, as if it's like it's, it's your guiding star, but it's not necessarily. If it, if it's a funny thing. It's like, okay, but maybe a silly example. So he's talking, we're all talking about this, my North Star, but no one physically will reach the North Star, right? It's just, it's just that the meaning behind it is like the purpose of having a North Star is just a guiding way for you to navigate during the night, if you wish to. Like that, that's, I think, where it comes from. And it's exactly the same things for happiness. It's like, okay, what's my purpose in life? And, and then happiness will, will, will become a byproduct, but then not the, the end result of it, the end yeah. meaning of it. Yeah, I think many people uh, work, 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 and they do all of this stuff for years, hoping that the happiness is going to come after some number of years or some accomplishment. And so what I'm suggesting is through the pattern app, through the Millman Life Purpose Calculator, or through the content in chapter four of I Know, I'm saying when you get aligned with daily activities that are really connected to your core values or your life's mission, you feel a deeper level of engagement and gratitude and happiness and desire to grow yourself or desire to contribute to the people around you. So instead of waiting for something to come later, years later, why not just do the hard work for the next 30, 60, 90 days to get to know yourself at a deeper level and then live the rest of your life in a way that produces gratitude and happiness and engagement and productivity every day. All right. It's like, how could anyone now develop self-awareness? Yeah, this is, you know, there are so many ways that I think that people go about this, right? So happiness, meaning, productivity, all that stuff. Uh, I'm certified by a company in Arizona, uh, in America, uh, called Target Training International or TTI Success Insights. And uh, I deliver the DISC assessment and I deliver a motivators assessment and also an emotional intelligence assessment. So there are five kind of core dimensions of EQ, if you will. But the first one and the one that, that you're asking about is this idea of self-awareness. So according to TTI, right, their definition is that, you know, self-awareness is the ability to recognize and understand your moods, emotions, and drives, as well as their effect on others, right? So how well do you know your own emotional triggers, right? It's really, that's what self-awareness is, right, at its core per the definition. But the way that I help people to understand where it is that their emotional response mechanisms and their level of self-awareness came from is that I try to teach them about a gentleman named Dr. Bruce Lipton. Have you ever heard of him, Ben? I've heard about him, but I'm not really, like, I'm not too much of what he does, basically. Yeah. So what, what Dr. Lipton found is that since 1971, he's been studying basically neuroplasticity and trying to figure out what's happening inside the human brain and why it works the way that it does. So for roughly 50 years, he's been looking into how different brain waves interact, how the brain synapses fire. So what he discovered is that there are five major brain waves and that uh, we go through different brain waves at different phases in our life. And this is really important to self-awareness. 
So from birth until age six, all humans are in the theta brainwave state, which is almost akin to being like subconscious or unconscious. And in that brainwave state, everything that happens around us from school to your family, to religious beliefs, to what's happening in your community, all of that gets baked straight into your unconscious and becomes your operating model of how you view the world. Because that, that's you need to know what it means to be a human being. And for birth until age six, that's how you do it. So this is, le- this, is, this is the iOS of the human being, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to say it. That's true. So your parents or your guardians or those family members in your life, they give you your kind of mental operating system. They give that to you when you're young. But after age six, your brain and human development process, you move into the beta brainwave state, which is a much more conscious state. So what does your beta brain, what does the kind of the front of your brain, where does it go in order to make choices and decisions? It has to go into your unconscious. So your beta conscious brain, which processes about 2,000 bits of information per second, goes into your unconscious, which processes 400 billion bits of information per second, right? So it's like random access memory or, right, the cloud, right, effectively. And so what's happening is, is that your level of self-awareness, your level of what it means to be a human being or a member of a community is given to you from birth until age six. So then you just live that out after age six into age seven. So if a person really wants to be self-aware, they have to understand first what shaped them into who they are, right? That's the, that's to me is really important. And then if they want to, then they can start to think about the ways that those particular things have manifested in their lives. And so sometimes I'll ask clients to keep a pain journal. And what that is, is that that is where for a couple of weeks, they just have to tell me the things that happened in their life for those two weeks that caused them pain or made them angry or sad. Or maybe it's a gratitude journal, or maybe they get feedback quite a bit from people around them. Uh, Maybe they have an accountability partner. So self-awareness is how can you get, external third-party information about your moods, about your motivations, about your emotions, so that you're really well aware of what it is that triggers you, makes you sad or angry, or what it is that makes you happy. And how is it that when you receive some sort of information from the environment, how is it that you know you're going to respond? Because that's that's the hardest part is the, yeah, the response piece. Actually, I'm curious about Mike. It's just I'm thinking, reflecting right now what you're saying. Um you know the saying that we all the time need somebody else to hold the mirror for us. And and this is kind of, it happens all the time when somebody comes to us with the problems, we tend to have all the time solutions and idea how to navigate that. While if a few days later, we exactly have the same problem, but we can't. It's just we feel stuck. Why is that actually? So I think that the way that... God, spirit, source, universe, whatever your belief pattern is, I think that in order to get us to learn a particular lesson or to navigate a particular emotion is is that the trigger to that particular emotion or belief pattern is introduced to us multiple times, right? And so if you think about the introduction to my book, Ben, you read that I contemplated suicide a couple years ago in May in 2019. And the universe God, spirit, source, whatever you call it, was giving me a lot of messages that I needed to try something different in my business, but I wasn't listening. Like I was seeing the messages, I was paying attention, I was seeing some of those patterns, but I wasn't changing my behavior. 
And so what I think happens is that when you get these small little messages from the universe or from somebody around you that you need to change, that you'll keep getting the same message repeatedly until you actually do change. And so I made the mistake in late 2018, early 2019 of not changing anything so much so that in May of 2019, so many things in my life had fallen apart that I had no choice but to shut down different revenue lines in my business. I walked away from a romantic relationship and I just took that summer to just heal myself. So I just want everybody listening to like, if you're getting the little messaging that you need to change something, but you're not necessarily seeing the pattern in the information Take a little bit of time to slow down and be a little bit more still. Look for those patterns and say, what in my life right now do I need to change? How can I be a little bit more self-aware about these patterns? Do I journal? Do I talk to somebody? Do I have a coach or a mentor so that you don't get to the point that I got to in May of 2019 where I just wanted to leave Earth altogether? Damn. All right. I'm glad that you still here, Mike. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. But I, I feel your pain. I mean, I feel I feel your pain is, I feel your pain in a way because I've read the intro and say it is like it seems like your books like is written really out of a lot of pain and and it's it's um it's I think a great it's like if it's render you more solid right now for who you are right because you 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 find yourself out of it and then now you're more than capable to to help others to get out from that, from that, from the same thing. And I think you wouldn't be able to, to tell anyone that's actually around you if they have troubles. I understand you. I think when you say understand you is an overstatement. No one could actually understand you unless they lived the exact same story. So you, I think you're privileged in a way that you went through that pain and you, you got out to help others through the same thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm glad that you said that, Ben. So thank you because I believe that we all from roughly birth until about age 28 go through a series of challenges and there's a pattern inside those challenges. And then around age 28, 29, 30, we find a way to overcome them in that the highest and best use of our life, the the deepest level of self-awareness thereafter is probably for the next 20 years to help other people overcome the exact same challenge we just overcame. Yeah. You know, as if not, but I I know that because this is what you wrote in your books, like you're 80s, right? You're born in 1980, isn't it? Yep. It's the best, best hell generation 80s, <laughs> just to, you know, to mark the point. I'm 85. Okay. So, so that's why I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just in, in Cleveland, Ohio in America just a few days ago, and I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there were many ba- there were many bands from the 80s and early 90s that I used to listen to quite a bit and follow, and they were enshrined there. And so it was kind of like this trip down memory lane, which was really cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had a just positive note before we carry on on this. I had a friend of mine. He, he she's from the US, so um, her name is Amy. So um, and we were we met actually in, in Austria, and she's she's born in the 70s. I think it was 79 or something. Sorry, Amy, to say that, but <laughs> so, so, so we were like arguing all the time. It was like, what's whether the, the rock and roll 70s or the 80s is better? And it was like all the time, it's constant, like, that she is like song by song, track by track. So <laughs> that's quite interesting. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so the following one, life is busy, right? It's just so much ambiguity in every corner you look at, and you're just getting worse and worse. And this is a simple example. Our, my parents, they're getting the news from two sources. Probably newspaper that comes once a month, not even a daily. 
and then a TV that has a, um, um, airing specific times, like from seven to, I don't know, midnight. It's not like 24 hours, no internet, nothing else. And, and then otherwise, it's just peoples around them, right? They're just telling each other. So where we are today in the age of technology and all of that, it's like how anyone could see through, so how, how one, anyone could clear out that noise and just head to that North Star. Yeah, it becomes really difficult because the, the what was happening in human history at the time that any person on Earth right now was roughly age birth till age six, whatever it was that they were taught to do, they're going to repeat throughout their life, right? My parents are both baby boomers. My mom's 64, my dad's 69. And their level of engagement with things like the internet or talking openly about kind of social topics is very slim. And so they're definitely repeating the kind of lifestyle and the, the, the collection of news and information from basically the same sources that their parents taught them, you know, 60 some odd years ago. So that's quite common, I think, for a lot of people, regardless of age, is, is that the information that you're exposed to at that young age is going to create kind of the mental model by which you operate in the world. So for for Ben's parents or for my parents, getting them to look at the world differently comes down to which of their friends and peer groups are willing to do it differently. And then how do we get our parents involved in those groups? And that's the key thing is that, yes, there can be a personal interest in my mom or dad or your parents, Ben, wanting to learn something different. That can happen. And there are certain communication styles that will do that. But for some folks who find a deep level of, of safety and feeling seen and heard by doing things the way that they've always done them, the way that they're going to change is by being a part of a group that's going through the change at the same time, right? So they still feel seen, heard, and appreciated, even though the transformation might be really hard for them emotionally. But is it true that we say our parents, grandparents were happier than we are? And is, this, is, it, is it true? I, I don't know happiness particularly. I think that's kind of a country by country thing, right? There's a country in Asia called Bhutan, which has, they don't use gross domestic product to assess the, the, the well-being of their populace. They use what's called gross national happiness. They use a completely different metric, right, to be able to assess that. So one of the things you can take a quick step back and look at, especially in kind of Western or European countries, is that because of the advent of the internet or the speed at which business or society goes, there has been a very steady rise uh, in basically stress. Uh, and so I could kind of say that if your body's releasing cortisol, which is the stress hormone, that if there's been a steady increase in that release over the last couple of decades, uh, that means that there's less dopamine or oxytocin or serotonin, which are the kind of happy chemicals, if you will, that those are being released just a little bit less. So, you know, millennials, those folks born between 1980 and 1996, they have much, much more higher than average levels of stress and anxiety and depression than previous generations. And we don't know exactly what it is that's the cause of that. But the levels of happiness and stress and pressure are definitely different from generation to generation because of what was happening in society at that time. Yeah. I'm just wondering, it's like, because you, you hear like a happy nations, well, that's Denmark and Norway, and all of, most of Scandinavia, they rank very high. New Zealand, I think something like this. But I, it's like, I feel it's like they're living this exactly the same thing. I wonder, is just, is it the DNA thing? Is it, is it, is it the sun? Is it the food? Is it the music? Or what is it? And I'm asking those questions 
Because all the time when I think is like, oh, I'm as, as individual, if I want to live in a country, what that country would be. You know, it's like it become um, an obsession in itself. And it's, I don't think it's the right thing to do, but it's always happening automatically. It's like, what's the best country you would like to live to? And it's like, oh, it's Denmark or Switzerland. or. But there's a story behind it. it just because that happiness pursuit or pursuit of happiness is just behind it. That's why I keep asking this question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that there's something about culture that gets passed from generation to generation. And you go to a place like America, right? There's pockets of different levels of busyness or people that live slower paces of life. Or you go to England and you're close to London, right? You're going to be a very, very fast pace of life. But if you go to kind of the rural areas, it's probably slower. So it, I think that the culture that gets passed from generation to generation is what someone could be unconsciously drawn to. Right. When I moved from Arizona, which was a very fast pace of life, a very chaotic way of living, I moved to North Carolina where the pace of life is much slower. And so, I, of course, I stayed within America, but I moved to a different part where the culture of the, the triangle area in which I live is very different. It's very slow. It's very educated. It's very diverse. People from all over the world come to, to live here because of the universities and because of something called the Research Triangle Park. So, I think that a particular place kind of draws us because it has a culture that really befits who it is that we're trying to become. I think that's the key. Yeah, well, well said, well said, Mike. Um, you alluded early on when anyone faced traumatic experience and, and anxiety, feel being blocked everywhere, the best thing is to take a retreat. But I, I'd like to press on, on that a bit. So what the best thing to do to heal? basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- this is so hard for folks because we, uh, we, we find so much peace and safety in our hearts uh, from continuing life the way that it has always been or the way that we've known it because that, that was safe for us. Right. So healing is really about how do you become well? How do you become balanced? How do you become whole again or more aligned with your earth school curriculum, uh, if you will? And so the way that I perceive healing, Ben, is to mm-hmm. say, Okay, if if you are no longer emotionally bothered or triggered today by something that two or three years ago used to really bother you, that's how you know you've healed. That's how you know you've become more perseverant or resilient or gritty. And so that's why I want people to understand. It's like the idea of self-awareness is the first piece of the emotional intelligence puzzle. The second piece is called self-regulation. And so when a person has the ability to regulate their response to some sort of a stimulus around them, right? So we always are taking in information via the human five senses into our nervous system, and it has to go through the back of our brain into something called the limbic system. And I'm sure you've heard of the amygdala and the fight, flight, or freeze response. And so healing is you have the ability to collect any stimulus from your external environment And you allow for it to get past that irrational feeling-based processing center in the back of your brain. And it goes to the front of your neocortex where you can make very rational, pragmatic decisions. So healing is going through this process of releasing some of the things that might have bothered you before, journaling, talking to a coach, a therapist, right, doing whatever those things are. And then you confront some sort of this stimulus. It's a person, it's, it's an ex, it's a bad boss, it's a crappy job, it's all these things. And you don't feel the same level of emotional response that you did a couple years ago. So that space between stimulus and response is where you heal. 
Because if you can pause and you don't respond, that's how you know you've healed. Okay. So another thing that helps in this process, Ben, is that we all go through negative experiences in life or what we perceive to be negative experiences. So what I try to teach people is, is that, well, if you wait a few weeks, a few months, or a few years after the negative event, you start to see the positive benefits of that event, right? And you start to see that it was actually not a bad thing, right? So for me, I went through that period in late 2018, early 2019, where I, I, I lost a girlfriend, my stepdaughter went off to college, I I closed down parts of my business and I could really perceive that as being negative, but there was actually hidden blessings inside of that, right? I got to deeper levels of self-awareness. I have a better, stronger relationship with my stepdaughter. I was able to meet my partner, Tiffany. Uh, I was able to open up some new revenue lines in my business that are actually more profitable than the others were. And so there was positive outcomes that came from the negative experience that was really helpful. So if you want to heal, Take the negative experience, wait a little bit, identify the positive outcomes. And the thing that will absolutely solidify the healing is when you can teach or coach or mentor somebody else through a similar situation. Because then you see that your pain became your purpose. Right. right? That's key. That's the healing piece right there for sure. Is, is it right if I say... Because I'd like to just understand a bit. So if we living um, bad experience, say on a job, is part of is part of taking a break is leaving that space away, uh, meaning running entirely from that or just taking a break, meaning pausing a bit and then going back again and go through the learning and how could how could you do things better? What's the best thing to do? Yeah, I've, I've certainly seen both work, right? So somebody could have a really bad work experience with a particular employer. They step away for a few weeks or a month. They just take a break, but they go back in with a fresh set of eyes or a fresh mind or they've healed a little bit. And so what used to trigger them no longer triggers them. And that could work, right? That's very viable. The other play is that, you know, the, the environment is so toxic that it's actually keeping you uh, lower than you need to be. And so for some people, exiting that toxic environment, taking 30 days to reset themselves and find that wholeness and that balance again, actually allows them to catapult higher and forward into a different job that might be more money. It might be a better work environment. It might be better colleagues. We don't know. So each person has to make that choice for themselves because both routes are really scary. I mean, they can be very anxiety producing. So both can be valuable, but it's the matter of which do you choose to participate in and why. Right. Now, my very interesting question, actually, I'm keeping that the last, but you know, the most interesting one in, in the last. So is the, like all the time we hear, do what you love, love what you do. But is it, is it that or fulfilling the purpose, um, fulfilling your own purpose, the real definition of success? What, what do yeah. you think? Yeah, I mentioned the, the, the Harvard study earlier and, you know, kind of talking about how, you know, the, the quality of someone's life has nothing to do with power, money, fame, success. So on earth right now, uh, a lot of the tumultuousness that you see happening globally is, is due to what in America NASA refers to as the procession of the equinoxes. And what First that time means, I heard that, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the procession of the equinoxes is, is that uh, earth's magnetic poles are shifting. They're moving. Right. And so those magnetic poles, and you can look this up on their website, is 
when those move and shift, that changes the energy fields around Earth entirely. And so the human body doesn't necessarily understand how to navigate that change in energy. And that's why you're seeing so many people behave differently than they would otherwise. Right. So what astrologists refer to it as is we're moving from something called the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. So call it what you want to. Earth is going through a really, really big transformation. So in the age of Pisces, we used to look up to celebrities and athletes and politicians and business people as being something that we needed to emulate and follow. And this kind of procession of the equinoxes or transformation on Earth is shifting us into uh, being able to trust our intuition, being able to trust our own journey, being able to trust that we can make those choices. So instead of looking outside of ourselves for some answers, we now have the courage and the clarity to look within ourselves. So to me, right, success is oftentimes defined as this aim or this purpose or this goal that you continue to work for and accomplish. But I don't really think that that's exactly what success is. I think that success is you have 100% control over where you distribute time. And that is a very difficult thing for people to wrap their mind around. And when I was in Cleveland a few days ago, I was working with a group of finance executives and they're so accustomed to their, their lives being nine to five in an office. That was for 40, 50 years of their lives. That's how they did business. And now because of the pandemic, that is no longer true, right? The office isn't a place where people, especially in America now, that's not where people work. That, that just happens to be a collaboration space or where someone goes to be able to collaborate or meet a team member. But the vast majority of work around the world now happens at home. So success to me is where you distribute your time. And then I guess through my lens of the world and thinking about, you know, uh, pain to purpose journeys and getting people to trust their intuition is, is that I think that the most fulfilling and successful life that someone can have is taking on as much responsibility as you possibly can to help others reduce suffering in their lives. Like that to me is like the real definition of success is like how much burden, how much weight, how much responsibility can you take on yourself to reduce someone else's suffering? And if you do that, your life is happy, you know, it's successful, it's very, very meaningful, and you know that you've done a really good job of growing and developing yourself, but also contributing to the betterment of others. I think this is a great message to leaders who, who lead other people. And and I've been talking to, about this particular topic. I know that we haven't chatted about it, but it's a big thing right now in terms of um, whether leaders, what empathy in leaders is, is, is enough. And and if it, and how best conduct that, especially when when that connection is face to face and that you know nonverbal communication is missing. And I like what you say is just how you can elevate other others' pain, and this is your own success. If you do that, then you will feel mm-hmm. good about it. Yeah, yeah. I was I was very blessed over the last few days to be in Cleveland with these leaders because you know, got to listen to some of the world's biggest companies uh, and their leaders deliver presentations and talk about the things that they're doing inside their companies to make the workplace much more humane, right? To like bring humanity actually into the workplace. And so what are we doing to create that environment for a supervisor or a leader to have very personal conversations with their employees to understand What does it actually take for this person to feel safe? What does it take for them to be okay with change? What are their talents and skills that they want to apply 
inside of a, a really different and changing world. Something happens at home to a, a child or you know, something shifts in the schedule because of a medical appointment. How can the supervisor show empathy and compassion to them, trusting that they'll do the work after the appointment? And so these conversations are becoming very commonplace when for years and years and years they weren't. And so I think the, the real trick for leaders is just to slow down. And I, I often refer to this, Ben, as a listening tour. So if someone's become a new supervisor or leader, f- for as many people as they have on their team as possible, go on a, a listening tour, like schedule 15 to 30 minute dialogues with each of these respective team members and pre-draft seven, eight, nine questions that you want to ask them and then go through and ask all those questions and take notes. And then as you transform the department, you then know what skills the person has, you know what it is they want to work on, you know how it is that they can benefit you and the team. But it comes down to how great are you as a coach, as a leader, listening and asking insightful questions. And if people can do those two things, listen well and ask really good questions, they're going to be great. And everyone would love working with them, right? And they'll never resign. And that's been a big thing. I don't know what it's like in Europe's particularly been, but here it's called the great resignation, the great reshuffle, the great, you know, who knows. But what's it called there? Is it different there? Okay, so I I made a joke with one of my guests, um, which was um, uh, about great resignations. And we were talking, it was like, it's happened in Europe, but we we don't have Hollywood. We don't use that like fancy terms like in the US, great resignation. Because in the US, your guys very great at calling things out and make them spicy in a way so it's happening it's happening in a way and i can tell you that that people i think you you spot only say there's like the earth going through a lot of transformations and we're moving away from following others to trusting our guts and intuitions and then this is happening right now that people taking um being able to take risk and trust the guts and instead of being employed they want to be employed um, employer and and start working with somebody else, they work for their own, or they, they simply don't want to work. They just want to go and travel or do an, um, non-profit activities and, and all of that. So th- th- this is happening. And I think the age of digital, why you call it transformations of w- what's happening, which is accelerated massively with COVID, um, I think the, the, the balance of... And, and, the work as as we knew it is not anymore as it is, is that everyone could work according to their own schedule and it's proven that doesn't have any impact. So the, the nine to five, it's just illusion that proved to be absolutely wrong in a way. Yeah, I, I think it worked, you know, so the in most countries, right, the school system as it was developed in the late 1800s was meant to mirror what would happen inside of a traditional factory job or inside of a traditional corporation, right? So that's how, you know, the school system was was meant to kind of psychologically train people to be prepared for, you know, the teacher being the boss or the bell being the break for lunch, right? The, you know, so there's all these parallels between the two. And at one particular point in human history, that was probably valuable, maybe the late 1800s or throughout the early 1900s. But as society has progressed and since 1995, when the World Wide Web started to really expand, we don't need to work nine to five in order to be valued or valuable or to make money. I mean, the way that we make money nowadays is so radically different from the way that we might have 10 years ago that traditional jobs, quite frankly, are no longer needed. And that's because this, our society has become very affluent. And I don't know about Poland where you are, Ben, but 
in America in 1929, the economy of the entire country was $1 trillion. Now, that seems like a lot, but it really wasn't back then because they were on the verge of the Great Depression and war and all these things. But last year in 2021, we were a $23 trillion economy. And you just think about that size and that breadth and that scope and how much wealth there actually was available to people. And so as wealth has expanded, as we've become more affluent as a society, the number of possibilities and options and permutations of what we could do for work has also expanded roughly at the same pace. So we live in a radically different world today that as opposed to 1990, it's just, you can't even really compare the two. I agree. Um, conscious of time, Mike, and it's very, we could go hours and hours. What's the next, next big thing you've got um, in your agenda? Yeah, the, there's two things I think that are uh, happening, right? So we're, you know, kind of close to the end of May as we're, we're sitting here and talking, Ben, and uh, all of these uh, interesting events that are occurring around the world, I think we're getting very close to some sort of uh, crescendo or penultimate event. And I, I don't know what it'll be, but I think we're getting very close to it, where uh, there, there will be kind of a recalibration of what's what it means to be a member of society. So something will shift or change. I don't know if it's an economic collapse or, or something else, but something will happen. So what I'm doing is I'm trying to prepare for that by by launching two things. Number one is uh, a membership newsletter. So for anybody who's actually really interesting, uh, interested in what it is that I have to say in my ideas, you know, a few, three, four times a month, I'm going to send out a newsletter just to these folks, right? Just to, hey, this is what's happening on earth. Here's a different way to look at it. What do you think? And number two is I, I think, especially today, as we're navigating these changes, I, I launched something called the you and I know circle which is a like a CEO roundtable or a CFO roundtable or a leadership roundtable where 10 to 12 people can just get together every other week and just talk through their emotions, their problems inside work, what's happening in society, what it means to, to feel like a normal human being. So I'm going to continue to coach. I'm going to continue to speak publicly and train and do all those things. But I think the needs of society have shifted quite a bit and that we need uh, more clear information and we need those small groups of people where we feel safe to really express ourselves. One last one I'd like to end the session with, Mike, is one piece of advice to everyone listening to the show today. I, I don't know where this came from, Ben, but I, but I think it's really important. And it, the, the phrase is, be the person you needed when you were younger. And it kind of wraps in the challenge, overcome challenge, help others overcome challenge or the pain to purpose journey, as we talked about at the top of the show. Uh, we're really in this place where you are going to feel the most happy and engaged and purposeful when you are helping other people in the way that you desired as a, as a kid. So I was raised on a small farm and you might have read this in the book, Ben, but I was, I was raised on a small farm. I didn't really have a coach or a mentor in my life. I really wanted one. So I always felt abandoned. I always felt uh, a little bit put off and I always felt like a robot inside the family business. And then, so at age 28, I went to school to get a master's degree and the coach there said, Hey, you know, here's this assessment. Here's this assessment. Here's this assessment. What I'm seeing is, is that you should actually be in leadership or human resources or something to do with, with helping others. And at first I didn't believe it. But she helped me to identify a process for becoming authentic, right? For becoming the best version of myself. And so now for the last 11 years, what have I been doing as a coach in my own business? Helping others become the best or most authentic or happiest version of themselves. So if anybody else that's, that's listening can literally be the person they needed when they were younger, take a few minutes to think about what did you not have in those younger years? 
What's the process you utilized in your late 20s to overcome the challenge? And now who can you help? Who can you uplift? Who can you help to reduce suffering for? And if you do that, you will be the person you needed when you were younger and you will really genuinely love life. Thanks, Mike. Was pleasure talking to you. Um, um, and, and yeah, um, I will add all of your details um, in the descriptions for everyone just to follow you. And yeah, I, I enjoyed every bit of it in our chat before the session today as well. And as I said, we could go hours. I could go hours talking to this. But yeah, we, we don't want to make it boring for everyone listening. <laughs> I'm sure it's not, but we can go long. We could. And thank you so much for your time, Ben. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Speak to you soon.